Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. How about this current group? Do you know them well? Do you get a feel of the team being, of course, six miles away in the Bronx? What can you tell me about that? Well, I know the the vibe towards uh, the the end of the season last year, uh, the fans was was electric. They were excited. Obviously, uh, I think they had one of the better records in the second half. Yep. So uh, there was there's a lot of excitement going to, into this 2020 season, and um, you know I'm happy to be a part of it. I feel like uh, our rotation is one of the best in the big leagues. Uh, you know our lineup uh, can put up some runs, and then you know for me, I'm excited to be in the bullpen and, and try to do the best I can to just. Hold those leads and, and uh, win win a lot of ball games. I think that's the goal for us. No, and I think you should be able to do that. Uh, you are all systems go now, health wise. Uh, you're going to be raring to go first day of spring training. Where are you right now, physically, Dylan? Uh, I feel I feel good. Um, I've done uh, obviously a lot of work this off season trying to get myself right, and uh, I'll be full ready to go in uh, spring training. So I'm I'm excited for that. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody, and uh, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast, our first podcast here in 2020. Uh, of course, you want to check out the show all the time, go to TalkingMetsPodcast.com, send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, pretty much uh, any podcasting service you desire, Spotify, whatever it is, I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm, I'm on it at some point, so... Uh, I had promised, and I and I apologized to all you guys. We were going to do some kind of uh, New Year's Day show, and uh, I was thinking about it, and and I'll talk about this on the way out of the uh, the program. But uh, something pretty cool that uh, we're going to do, and I wanted to do it more than just one day, and it was some technical cleanup that I had to do, and I'll explain it later. But uh, I do apologize if you were expecting something to pop up on New Year's Day, but uh, 
be that as it may, I think the end result of what uh, I've been looking to do is going to be a lot better than uh, initially planned. So stay tuned for that. Joining me in just a little bit is Maury Brown of Forbes. Uh, Maury's been a longtime uh, friend of the program. Uh, guy has uh, great inside information about the state of baseball, conversations with Rob Manfred and his team, the MLB Players Association. And what we're really looking to do is look back at the decade that was and, and really the issues that uh, came to the forefront, as well as look forward from a big picture perspective. Yeah, it's not just the Mets segment and the Mets ownership situation and what's going on with them will come up, but really looking at the game as we head into the 2020s and really what to expect, this potentially labor unrest coming in the next few years, uh, tons of things on the table, expansion, what have you, minor leagues being blown up, all these things affect the Mets, affect the way that we watch uh, the, the game, and, and of course, uh, what uh, happens at City Field. So uh, stay tuned for Maury Brown uh, when uh, when that segment comes up in a little bit. Now, I was thinking about how to start off, and I saw as the end of the year, Christmas into New Year, and then, you know, obviously after, everybody was doing different decade rankings, and, you know, top moments, you know, sorted by war, some kind of stat, uh, I know even the, the minor league system, they kind of ranked by wins above replacement, the minor league systems, the Mets actually came out pretty good, and that's all fun, that's all fine and dandy. But what I thought about is, for I don't want to get into that. That's not what we do here. And I think it's pretty obvious. If, if you're listening to this show and you're a Mets fan, what are your best moments? You could put a whole bunch of personal things that maybe happen for a specific reason to you. But I think it's boiled down to, to pretty much two, two things. I mean, it's the Johan Santana no-hitter. I mean, who who would have expected that after so many near misses in franchise history, especially at... Santana's uh, time in his career and then the 2015 pennant which was so unexpected and was almost two seasons in one kind of the purgatory season earlier in the year that you experienced through pretty much the first half of the decade and and then this dynamic uh, whirlwind post July 31st season that led to a pennant and a world series which to this day I believe they should have won if it was managed better but that's not what this is all about. The, the thing that really, for the decade, obviously stands out to me, and I think it's where I'll take this segment, I think the Mets, and, and this should be something that will be addressed with the ownership change, I know that's still very much up in the air, I, until you see it happen, you don't know what's going on, I think the term half measure is a right way to talk about what the Mets did, and I know that's been something that has been talked about with Wilpon ownership for a long time. And we've done segments on the Wilpons and why, and, and that's not what this is about. But I think the half measure, and we'll bring this up, especially with these, the epidemic of tanking with teams now. But back in 2010, when the Madoff situation happened, I'll be the first to admit, I didn't take it seriously. Uh, in the sense of, all right, this happened, this is bad. The, the gravity of the situation and how invested the Wilpons were financially and how invested the team and, and what the, what what they were doing with the team finances. Uh, you know, give Howard McDell, our friend Howard McDell, credit. He was the first one to say, hey, this is a problem. But when that happened, and then 2011 happened, and 
at that point, I was like, hey, you got right, you got Reyes, you still have uh, Beltron, maybe they trade Beltron. I felt, and I and I still believe they had enough where even if they had invested around the components, they may have been able to make a run at a wild card. And that mindset was probably the wrong mindset because if I had known how much purgatory this team would have been in for the better part of about five years and uh, the inability for them to be flexible and spend and and as much as I'm a critic of Sandy Alderson, I think navigating that was was probably the most uh, unique part and, and the part of the job that he should get credit for. What they should have done, which may have changed the decade completely, for better or worse, because you never know, they should have traded Wright and Reyes and really bottomed out and really taken that bold position back then. And I was against that. I was I was for them signing Reyes. I was for them giving Wright a long-term extension because I felt, well, these guys are in their prime. They're young. You know, this this is an organization that is in New York. They should be able to, with those two guys, compete and win with reasonable moves around them. And I was completely wrong. Uh, Reyes left, and, and after he left, he was never the same player. Now, remember, he had a couple of years of injuries going into 2011, and 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 that's what marked uh, that 2011, him coming in and proving himself on a contract year, winning the batting title. Wright was pre-back injury, pre-stenosis. That year, actually, is when he had the first injury, when he was diving, uh, trying to get a, a tag on Carlos Lee at third base, where I believe that that uh, injury he sustained on his back was probably the beginning of the end of David Wright. So to me, that's the miss of the decade. That's what would have made the decade different. That's the dynamic move that I think ownership missed out on. What would I like to see in the 20s? Well, obviously we all want to see the Mets join the elite spending teams like the like the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Dodgers and the Yankees. But I also don't want to see it become, and I think that the fans are are going to fuel this and the media is going to fuel this if and when. I mean, I guess it's going to happen. Steve Cohen takes off the te- uh, over the team. I don't want to see a, a baseball or an MLB version of what the Knicks were prior to Donnie Walsh, just spending money to spend money and feed the beast. So, like if you remember when Fox owned the Dodgers in the late 90s, early 2000s, they would spend money, bring names in, but they weren't really building a team. Uh, you got to be smart. You got to continue to invest. And I think as we we look at some of the happenings in the week, the Batances press conference, Brody Van Wagenen's comments, I think there's a lot of meat and potatoes out of that. Um, I, I think the Mets have the ability, and they have people in charge to, uh, that uh, they can be smart. They can continue to do things to build up uh, their coaching and their data driven uh, information. Uh, continue to to try to draft well and be aggressive in the draft and be creative in the draft and and build a farm system and then make the right free agent move not just the moves that win back page headlines or satisfy the media or satisfy the fan base and uh, and I hope that that continues when this transition which if you believe the the pundits will be sometime around 2025 but maybe sooner as early as 12 months from now I think the biggest thing that I hope which is really annoying with some of the glamour teams, the Dodgers, which don't have necessarily a hardcore fan base. I believe there's a lot of frontrunner in there. Uh, the Yankees, which have become kind of a caricature, those fans of themselves over the last 25 years, pretty much the last time they were blue-collar and hardcore was 1996. I think the fans, especially late in the year, showed a blue-collar, a blue-collar spirit, a passion. Uh, it was a unique place. You heard in the opening when I gave you the clip from Dylan Batances with Christopher Mad Dog Russo, that he even noticed it. 
You don't want it to be the phoniness. Basically, you want the Red Sox fan base prior to 2004. Red Sox fan base, I think, has fallen into the same kind of phony, I'd say, or entitled mindset that some of those other organizations I just pointed out have. I hope the Mets fan base continues to keep their blue-collar, grassroots mindset and roots, but with maybe a little bit more of a of a winning mindset in the sense where it's not the woe is me, the roof is caving in, and I know a lot of the things, the crazy things, and we'll get into the cesspitous craziness in a bit, uh, play into that. But I think part of the problem with this fan base is the energy it brings to the ballpark sometimes. Taking out that wild August and maybe early September when they were really part of something special, but earlier in the year, especially when things were going bad, you could sense the energy in the crowd where the roof was about to cave in, and and that's the part of the fan base that's bad. But the part that's good is what you saw in August, and you hope whatever happens, whatever spending, whatever winning happens, and I think they will be winning, uh, that they keep that because that's special. And, and the last thing I'd like to be talking about 10 years from now is how the Mets have had success. Hopefully they've had a championship, at least one. And uh, how I'm disappointed about what this thing has become, where it's another version of the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees, because I think the Mets are still special and different. I still think they have that Brooklyn Dodgers wait till next year mindset, which is annoying at times, but I also think it's unique and special. And I think if it's channeled with the appropriate winning mindset, can give this team and continue to give this team the character that that makes it special and makes everybody, I think, listening to this show enjoy rooting for them and 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 being a part of, of, of what this pastime is and, and why we're able to do a podcast weekly uh, of, of such a niche or niche, uh, you know, such a niche situation. So anyway, that's my thoughts about the decade. I probably went on longer than I wanted, but uh, that was kind of my interesting take without getting too uh, deep on uh, how 10 years have flown by. And it's now been 13 years I've been doing some form of radio, podcast, I can't believe it. I always said it was five years, and if nothing came of it, I'd walk away. And and every year when I think, is this it? Uh, Like I said uh, earlier in uh, 2019, I said, is this it? Is this time for me to to pack it in? Um, Something happens, and something pushes me towards continuing uh, uh, forward. So anyway, uh, let's take a break. When we return, I want to get into this cesspitous silliness, because obviously every time we come on, there seems to be some kind of silliness that we have to set the record straight on. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Mets have had some of the best broadcasting teams in the history of baseball. We do our part in remembering that, like when Mark Rosamond, co-author of the book Down on the Corner, looked back on the post-game show Kiner's Corner, hosted by none other than the iconic Ralph Kiner. I agree with you. You know, you look at it, and, and I've kicked this around with a lot of people, including Steve Gelbs. I would love I know they do the on-field interview, like right after the game, but that's maybe three, four seconds, and, and the player's off into the dugout and into postgame. And then you cut to, you know, Mets postgame live, and you have an hour worth of analysis. Uh, this was just pure player and, and the Hall of Fame player talking baseball. It wasn't over-analytical. It wasn't exit velocity. It wasn't, you know, how many times a shift was deployed in the game. It was just pure, simple baseball. And that's why I think people loved, of our generation loved it. it I, I think we've gotten to a point where baseball is over-analyzed. 
and you lose some of the pureness of the game through the overanalyzation. And I would love to see it go back a little bit, but I don't think it will ever happen. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Um, hopefully we don't have to do too much silliness every week. It seems like every week I'm trying to address some kind of silliness. but And this one's a little bit different. So, so Cespedes and the boar. So first off, it's interesting how, and it was good reporting, uh, how, how this thing all came together. And, and I know everybody's been interested, well, what did Cespedes do? Why did he violate his contract? It's very rare that the Players Association in baseball would, would agree to such a thing. Um, even before I went to an arbiter, because it was very, you know, shady or very gray area what what was happening. And it turns out that Cespedes, here's a guy that despite his millions, despite being a a Major League Baseball player, uh, is still doing some of the things that he's passionate about, farming and land, and he's on this ranch, and anybody who knows anything about those situations, that these are not jobs that are unsafe, I mean, even though everyone thinks of crazy things that athletes do, like, you know, jet skiing and, you know, back in the day, Ron Gant breaking his leg on a, on a dirt bike, whatever. You know, Aaron Boone in the basketball. I mean, this is also something that's very unsafe when you think about it, especially, and if you look and if you remember, Port St. Lucie was the wild when the Mets moved there. It was basically open land. And I think there's even been a story about these wild boars back when the Mets first came over, how Sid Fernandez got chased by one. I'm trying to remember if that's uh, a story that I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, uh, clearly he was putting himself in a dangerous situation. Clearly when he's on the ranch doing his work, uh, uh, riding horses, getting out there and trapping boar, you know, anything you have to do with uh, these kind of these kind of animals. These aren't dogs or cats here, people. Uh, this is a, a dangerous situation that falls under that clause in his contract. And, you know, on one hand, you got to give Cespedes credit. He's kept to who he is. He hasn't changed. Um, you know, he's not letting his, his fame and his job, uh, you know, dictate, you know, how he lives his life. On the other hand, I mean, look, he's an adult. He should know. When you have $30 million at play and you put yourself in these situations, you're putting, you're earning your life, you're earning in jeopardy. Uh, so that I don't, at the end, I don't get angry about it. I think it's, he's an adult. He has a contract. Uh, he violated the contract. He's paying the penalty. It, it, it is kind of annoying when you look at it from a team perspective, but again, this is his life. This is his, this is his way of spending his money that he's worked hard to earn. And if he wants to put it at risk, and he certainly now learned a, a valuable life lesson through this, who am I to say you shouldn't be out there farming? I personally wouldn't be doing it. I personally would be careful, but that's me. Here's what annoys me about the whole situation is, all right, let's laugh, let's make jokes, let's the New York Post or the Daily News or whatever do a headline with a bore. Now you're going to hear everybody, even so Al Troutwig, jump in with his own joke about the bore and Cespedes and everything. Let me explain something to all of you guys out there that are you know, being smart about it. Every one of you guys, if you ran into one of these boars like Cespedes uh, did, would be running for the hills. And you probably would hurt yourself too. 
Uh, this is not a joke. He could have been killed. I don't see anybody talking about that. I don't see anybody saying, wow, this guy could have been killed. Even though it's his, of, his, of his own doing, he could have been killed. So there's no, there's no sympathy. There's no empathy. There's nothing there about it. Um, nobody's talking about that. They're making one big joke about it. And to me, that's what is wrong with the media today. Great reporting, great story. I'm curious where the leak is. The leak to me is the interesting part because I don't think it's coming from the Mets. I think that's coming from the Players Association or from baseball. Um, and I think I got the impression reading it that the Mets obviously, once the story is out there, is going to confirm. If Brody is going to keep the managerial search under wraps with leaks, I have a hard time believing that he's going to be, or his staff or his front office is going to be the ones leaking why Cespedes lost you know, over $20 million or potentially will lose over $20 million. So that that's the interesting part where the leak is. And if it is coming from the Mets, if I'm Brody, I'm starting to figure out, I'm starting to work on figuring out who this is because this, this becomes problematic on other uh, ways. But look, it's over. The guy's going to come to spring training. He has uh, millions of dollars at stake that make it where the Mets are in the best possible position with Cespedes. What appeared to be going into the offseason – completely dead money, dead situation. You're never going to see him again. Now is a guy that has a ton to prove to earn back what he already had negotiated to potentially extend his career with another contract, even if it's for a year. And he's probably going to be a year-to-year guy unless something drastically changes. And the last time Cespedes was in that situation back in 15 and 16, he had some of the best years of his career. And the Mets benefited from it. They went to a, a World Series. They went to the postseason. And he was a big part of it. So nothing bad is going to come out of this. I think the bad part is nobody's actually saying, wow, this guy could have been killed. I feel for him. Nobody's talking about here's a guy that, you know, is doing something different and unique. I think it's dangerous and foolish and all the things above. Um, but nobody's talking about that. And it's all jokes and ha, 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 LOL. Come on, guys, grow up. You're supposed to be the the, the leaders in, in news out there. And... I think it's actually, and it doesn't surprise me, I think it's in poor taste to make a joke about it and to put the bore on the front of the, the paper. And I know that's not the writers. That's a different department that does that. But do you understand how dangerous these, these animals are? You know, I'm surprised we haven't had, you know, any of the animal rights activists pop up on this. I was waiting for that one to come. You know, the guy's, on, the guy's got land that's his, and he's actually infringing on the boar's land. You know, when you start getting into the fringes of of whatever area you want and you start getting into the wild. And I've talked to people who have houses that are near coyote dens and things like you're starting to like, you got to realize you're, you're starting to put yourself in a position where you better be ready to accept the consequences of being in the wild, so to speak. So uh, that's my take on Cespedes. Uh, I don't think we need to speak more about it. You know, you, we heard earlier in the off season, the Eduardo Perez comments, he says he's ready. He's ready to prove everybody wrong about him. That he's going to go out there and hit, you know, 52 home runs, whatever it is. Look, if he could stay on the field, he can be a contributing member. If this is a situation where Cespedes is playing every day and proves everybody wrong like Beltron did 10 years ago when he came back from the microfracture surgery and either yields the Mets some kind of return in a trade or helps them make the postseason and, and, and go far, then uh, an unfortunate situation that should be taken seriously will turn into a very fortunate situation for the Mets, especially a guy that over the years, many have believed, needs a little kick 
to take it to the next gear, and that kick usually is financial, and 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 he certainly has that now. So anyway, that's it with the Cespedes silliness. Uh, I, I just wanted to give my two cents in there. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Brody Van Wagenen's press conference. A lot to learn from that press conference. A lot of interesting nuggets. We'll talk more about that when we return with more right after this. I've talked many times this offseason and in the past that our goal is to increase the floor of our projected win total. This signing is different. This signing was intended to blow the cover off of our ceiling. We believe that a healthy and dominant Dellen, combined with Edwin Diaz and Seth Lugo and Justin Wilson, Jerry's Familia, Brad Brock, Robert Gesellman, this collective group has the potential to be one of the best bullpens in baseball. And we're excited to get them all together down in Florida here in almost a month from uh, from now. You went out there and, and basically said that with the Dallin Batanza signing, you think this bullpen could be one of the best in baseball. Uh, what is it in particular, not just about him, but about the rest of the guys that maybe had down years last year uh, that gives you so much confidence that they will bounce back and you will be in that position that you weren't a year ago? Yeah, it's a combination of things, Steve. I and mean, I think that the work that Edwin Diaz and Jerry's Familia in particular are doing this offseason is beyond what I've seen two players, two players do. And that includes players that I've represented for over over the years. Um, these guys have have conviction. They have a huge desire to be to make a statement to this team and make a statement to the fans and make a statement really to the league to to demonstrate who they are. You know, at their at their best. Uh, Dallin has the same mindset. I mentioned up there on the on the stage that he doesn't just want to return to form. He wants to dominate his opponents, and that's something that's very very attractive. And I think that when you put that group together of like-minded people and combine it with a new manager and combine it with with Jeremy Hefner, we have two people there at the leadership that will will be able to connect with these players and and be able to motivate them in a way that uh, that will find a success. All right. So before we get to Maury Brown, I wanted to comment on the press conference at City Field earlier this week to introduce Dylan Batances as the newest member of the Mets bullpen. And we got into the benefits of, you know, really that deal in the last podcast. And uh, you heard the comments from Brody Van Wagenen about how he believes the the deal with Batances has really blown the ceiling off, to use his words, on the, uh, you know, Mets potential and obviously raised the floor in a lot of ways. So... Uh, I think you could go back to the last podcast, and I think anytime, to, to succinctly put it, you have the amount of pitchers that can miss bats and potentially close that the Mets have throughout their bullpen, and guys that, for the most part, with the exception of Brad Brock, can get both lefties and righties out, and maybe they're working on something with Brock on that. Uh, that's a good situation to be in. The Mets are in a, as good a situation as they could be in. And they have a couple of guys in Edwin Diaz and Jerry's Familia that are going to have to improve. And whatever that chip on their shoulder that potentially may be there, you heard Brody's talking about their desire to improve and they're working with Jeremy Hefner. Well, that's got to happen because if it doesn't, then uh, there's still going to be uh, a couple of holes to fill and there's still going to be issues throughout the season. But that's that's for a later date. I thought the real thing I wanted to bring up to all of you, and if you listen, there was a MLB.com video which was essentially the press conference from when Brody introduced Dellen Batances all the way through Dellen's questioning by the media. That was the, the official press conference. And a lot of times, 
these are very boring. They're full of uh, cliches. Like I always say, you can never really lose the press conference. If you lose the press conference, then you're in for a really long season. Uh, But I thought on this particular situation, Brody was very open and gave you a couple of things to really listen to, to understand why I think he's good at what he does. And, and and as much as he gets criticism for his inexperience as a GM, and there's been some questions whether he is a good GM or not, and I know there's a desire from some members of the media as well as the fans to go with a more, uh, you know, new age, younger, you know, Heim Bloom who, who wound up getting the job with the Red Sox as their chief baseball officer, a, a guy like that, a more sabermetric guy. I think you're going to come to realize the importance of the fact that Brody Van Wagenen is not just the general manager of the Mets in the sense where he's doing player moves. I think he's got his hands all over the organization. He's even talked about that uh, at times when he when he when his biggest learnings were coming onto the job. Uh, you know, HR, HR issues, and things like that. So, I think the the fact that he continues to point out about creativity and collaboration. Uh, things that probably he used and, and accentuated during his previous job running the baseball division at uh, CAA. Uh, I think you guys have to start to realize that there's some value in that. So if you go to this clip, this is the clip, uh, and there's three things that you want to take away that are a little bit different. One, he outlined very detail-wise, in a very detailed way, the process and I think it's important to listen to it because sometimes as fans and even as pundits and reporters will do something do anything what's holding things up and it's complicated deals are complicated even one-year deals like the one that uh, Dylan Baton says is uh, signing can get complicated I think he talks about and he gets into detail about closing the deal and the short window of time really a couple of days they had where uh, Dylan Baton says camp said, hey, we want to be here, let's get something done, but you're on the clock, basically. And then the third is not only what he just said, as you heard the clip coming into the segment, but also Brody's theme. And I wonder, the theme of being underdogs in the division, I wonder if that's something that they're going to take and position healthy, in a healthy way, uh, with the team, so that what happened last year would come and get us, doesn't happen again, and, um, you know alleviates some of the issues that arise when uh, you make bold predictions. The media these days does not take bold predictions. Look, you could put the chips to the center of the table sometimes, and there's a time and a place for that. I'm not sure last year was the time and the place, but I do understand what Brody was trying to do. He's trying to change the mindset around a team that I think was more focused on failure than it was on winning. I think he was trying to get a, a, a little bit of an edge to these guys. Now that he knows what he has and, and, and the kind of players that he has, I think those guys have the edge. I don't think they need statements. Uh, I think they want to win, and I think they want to dominate, and I think they they have some guys in there that, that have some grind on them, some grit on them. So I don't think he needs that. But let's listen to the first clip. This is the clip that Brody outlines the process throughout the winter. And listen to how detailed it is. And it's important to listen because if you haven't heard it, this will explain sometimes the frustration or maybe the pace at which things happen in the offseason. And and it doesn't always mean the Mets are incompetent or teams are not doing anything. It's a process like any other business transaction. So if you haven't heard this, let's take a quick listen. This process started way back in November. Jim Murray, Michael Stavall, two of Dell and Batanz's agents, were out in Arizona. They met with us. 
What was clear there is that we were interested in Dellen, but that Dellen had many interested teams. Jim expressed at that point in time that this process was not going to be a fast one. They were going to evaluate the market. They were going to provide all the information to Dellen, and ultimately Dellen would make a decision after he narrowed the focus on teams. Since they weren't in a rush, we needed to go through the rest of our off-season priorities. We focused our attention on starting pitching. When we got to the winter meetings, we focused, as you all know now, on Michael Waka and Rick Porcello. We felt that both of those pitchers added depth to our starting rotation and ceiling of accomplished elite caliber players. We again met with, with Jim Murray and Stavall at the winter meetings, ironically, because they also represented Rick Porcello. But throughout those negotiations with Rick, even at that point in time, we remained skeptical that we would ultimately be standing here today. Dellen had so many options and uncertain, and the free agency market is so uncertain that it's always hard to know who's going to be the last, last team standing. So we packed our bags. We moved back to City Field here, and the leadership group in the baseball operations department bunkered in, huddled down, and ultimately talked about where we would go from here the rest of the offseason. As we went through the considerations, one name kept popping up, Dellen, Dellen, Dellen. So we knew coming out of that meeting that we had to make one final pitch. We had to make one final pursuit to see if we could somehow be the winning bid within the Dellen sweepstakes. So, so there you have it. And it's really important to see that it takes two to tango. It's not just players and agents sitting out there waiting for a contract plopped in front of them. They have their own process. So while everyone's saying, well, what's going on? Why are the Mets not doing anything? That was about as detailed of a process as I've heard a GM in real time talk about at a press conference. Usually, I mean, stories come out, like when Beltron signed with the Mets back in 2005. You heard stories after the fact about how Tony Bernazard called him for every day for 30 days. I mean, there's always nuances throughout the history of, of baseball and trades and free agencies that come out. But Brody outlined specifically to you guys their process there and how they had to move on, the Mets, and, and fill other holes. And Dylan Batances had to do what he had to do, which is make sure that not only this is where he wanted to be, but he also uh, needed to make sure from a monetary perspective, and he Brody outlines that later in the press conference, he wanted to be fairly compensated, he wanted to go back to his old dominant self, and he wanted to win, and he had other options that he had away, and he had to really be honest with himself. And as he went through that process, the Mets continued to stay in contact. They even had, it sounds like, the uh, one of the analytics guys call him, a, a guy that used to work with the Yankees. So uh, start to understand a little bit of what's going on here. And start to take a more, if you haven't, you have to take a more mature view of of these negotiations. It's more than a Twitter statement and mystery teams and, you know, tantrums and media buffoonery. This is a real business with millions of dollars at stake. And I think the portrayal, especially in the mainstream media, is one of cartoonish auction behavior. And that's just not. Uh, what this is all about. So Brody goes in now, and, and we'll listen to this clip. This is, you know, he talks about closing the deal. And lastly, he wanted dominance to a winning culture and a winning environment. We were fortunate to be able to sell him on our winning environment to the point where, after our meeting, Jim, Stavall, Dellen all left the room. They left me sequestered in, his, in a conference room for about, uh, about 45 minutes all by myself. Uh, when Jim and Stavall came back, they gave a very clear expression. 
Dellen wanted to be with the New York Mets. And at that point, it was our task, the team of negotiators at that point in time, to figure a way out. The only failure at this point was if we couldn't make a deal. And that's what we did. Seven hours, probably half a dozen breakout sessions later, FaceTime calls, different deal structures. Ultimately, we had a handshake. And on Christmas Eve, Dellen became a member of the New York Mets. Closing a deal. That's as simple as, I mean, that's like any of you, any of you who have been in sales, business, uh, that's closing a deal. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter if it's baseball or selling coffee or selling anything else. It's it's closing a deal. And I got to tell you, hearing Van Wagenen and how when they got the green light that this was a player that wanted to be here, he knew, and he, you heard him say that, it was about closing the deal. The only failure would have been on them. And they found a way to get it done. They found a way to get it done responsibly within their budget, within the risk uh, factors. You got to make sure that you understand that you're taking on a guy who had a serious injury, multiple serious injuries, so there's no guarantees. And I got to tell you, I'm not sure every GM could do that. And I'm not sure Hein Bloom could do that. I'm not sure Hein Bloom, that's really what you hire him for. I think you hire him for different reasons. It's a different type of GM. The Mets wanted a GM that could be a face in this market can push this team to a different mindset, to a big boy's mindset, and get them out of the sleepiness that really was, as I said earlier, I think, part of the decade that would just passed, but also part of the financial situation that they were in, more so in the first half of the decade than the second half of the decade. So you have the right guy in, and then I don't have audio of it, but they basically asked Brody to assess his team, and you heard what he said earlier about the bullpen, uh, not making any guarantees, but he likes the bullpen and he likes the ceiling and how the Mets' ceiling of performance with this bullpen really now uh, could be raised and elevated to a very, very high level. But when they asked him about the division, and, and that was a setup question, they're looking, the media is looking for Brody to say something that they could hold against him six months from now. So what does he say? You know, they bring up Come Get Us in 2019. Are you doing a Come Get Us again here in 2020? And Brody says the following. We're chasing a World Series champion now. We're chasing another division title holder in the Atlanta Braves. As I said last year at the trade deadline, we're the underdogs now, and it's our responsibility to go chase some other people down. If we can play to our potential, I think we can contend and play with the best. And I'm not sure a mantra of underdog is what they'll come to spring training with, but I think they feel, and so far I feel, and I agree, and and the only thing that really they lost was Zach Wheeler, and I understand the long-term ramifications of that. Uh, I understand that there's a drop-off from the second-half rotation uh, to what they have now, but I think from what that rotation was going to be realistically, which was what they had throughout the season, they're just as good, if not better. And I think the Mets are going to take a a different approach in spring training. I definitely think, listening to them, that this is going to be a season where they're going to continue to improve their use of data, I think they like the communication and the collaboration and the type of coaches they have. I think one of the biggest things that got in their way last year was having an organization that was fractured, mainly between Brody, uh, Mickey Calloway, and maybe some of the coaches there. And and that never is, is good for uh, any team when they're trying to pursue a goal because they're all fractured and on different pages and controversy ensues and, and we don't have to go back to – you guys know all the things that happened during 2019. And, and it actually – the second half, it's pretty remarkable that they were able to bring it all together amongst 
all that nonsense that was going on around them, all that stuff that was swirling, you know, amongst all of that uh, garbage, and actually have one of the best records in baseball in the second half, and nearly uh, come back from 10 games under to uh, to make the postseason, and they would have been a dangerous out in the postseason. And, and I still believe that um, it, if they made the postseason, it would be interesting how they would have approached, even if they lost a wild card game, how they would approach the managerial situation. But uh, be that as it may, it, it didn't happen. So I, really what I want you to take away from that press conference is not the platitudes and maybe the one quote that everyone's going to throw around about Dellen Batances. And, you know, the ceiling and, and all that stuff. We know he's good. We know the Mets have some really interesting pieces. Yes, there's some big ifs on health in that bullpen. But learn and listen to the kind of general manager that you have in place. And I think you need to feel good that the guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to read a market. He knows how to pivot. He knows how to get a deal done. And those are the things, as the Mets continue to evolve away from their current financial situation into potentially new ownership, I think those are things that are going to be really, really helpful in navigating uh, different type of free agent processes, maybe even some that are far more deeper into the pool than the Dellen Batances and the Rick Porcellos and things like that. To, to see a guy like Ken Davidoff of the New York Post talk about, well, Brody just needs to sit back and not do anything until Cohen becomes the owner, you know, just because you, know, you don't want him to screw up, just tells you how vapid and how uh, out of touch some members of the media are. Listen, listen to what's being said in front of you. Sometimes you can learn. And the funny part is Brody always gives you something that you could take away. You have to work for it. You have to work for it. It's not obvious all the time. But it's there, and he never just gives you lip service. Yes, he's corporate. Yes, he measures his words. And yes, I know that annoys some people. But there's always something you can take away and learn about his process, the team's thinking, and what the team is doing, and what you could expect to come away with. He's not lied to you once this offseason. He's given you enough clues so that you should be pretty unsurprised. You, should, you shouldn't feel uh, that you were misled from the time that Carlos Beltran was hired in November at the GM meetings to when he talked about the state of the team till now, that the Mets are where they are and the roster construction is what it is. All right, let's take a quick break. Let's get to our guest, Maury Brown. Maury Brown of Forbes will talk about the decade that was in baseball, what were some of the big stories, what to expect in the decade ahead, and maybe he'll give us a little update on the Mets' ownership situation and his thoughts about where the Mets are from a financial perspective and will they be one of the power players in the 20s. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. We're back and joining me. Uh, you guys know him. Business of Sports Network was his uh, baby, Business of Baseball. He's at Forbes. Baseball America at Bizball Maury on Twitter, Maury Brown and Maury, happy new year. Pleasure to have you on. And I was just thinking, I mean, the, the season is so long in baseball, the off season seems so long, but it flies by. Here we are, what, four or five weeks before pitchers and catchers. So it, it's amazing how 
there's really no downtime anymore. No, and I mean, it really has changed a lot with the advent of social media, obviously. There's just a lot more interest around it. And, you know, thank goodness this was actually a hot stove year where we had a couple of slow years in the past. So, uh, yeah, I'm actually very excited for the upcoming season. Everybody's doing the look back on the decade. And, I mean, that could get a little bit monotonous and boring. But from a big picture perspective, I mean, the game's grown, what? 40% 40% in revenues. You just did a recent piece on, on baseball revenues. And I, I was wondering your thoughts. I mean, wh- how would, what were the, the big picture themes in your opinion of the last 10 years in a game that clearly, you know, it flies by and, and it may not seem different to us, but a, a lot's happened in those 10 years. Well, I think the biggest thing obviously is that, um, you know, we've seen the advent of the quote unquote tanking or the rebuild or or stripping it down to the axles. And that has really sent, I think, a shockwave through. Um, Certainly what the Astros did um, has really gotten a lot of notice around it and the Cubs to a lesser extent. And that I think really changed the landscape a lot. I mean, we really have seen a situation to where um, ownership has obviously had some advantages on this. They, they, you know, are very often tell me, you know, whether it's Rob Manfred or others around the league have said very much, you know, it's a free market system. Um, we'd like to invest in younger players. Of course, the players association um, has caught a bit off guard on this um, and are, you know, looking to try and figure out a way when we go into the next collective bargaining agreement, around how to maybe get some more equity into some of the younger players, and that would cascade through into free agency. But that, I think, was the biggest story over the last 10 years. I mean, there were obviously, you know, the Red Sox, of course, being so dominant a couple of times in there and really, you know, coming through after, you know, the Yankees in 2009, seeing them miss, um, you know, a World Series for the first time in a decade was, was pretty remarkable. There isn't a lot of parity, though. I mean, there, you know, the game is structured now, Mike, to where I think that there's the illusion of parity more than we would like to think. Um, certainly the A's and Rays fan will say, well, look, look how we did. But, you know, for those that have read Moneyball, you know, Billy's quote-unquote stuff doesn't seem to work in the postseason. And that's largely indicative of the amount of money that goes to starting pitchers and um, that while there was a lot of talk about the opener, which I think was another thing over the last decade, um, we saw with this last World Series that the starter still matters. And then once again, the game is kind of unpredictable that way, that owners and GMs, I think, are largely, um, you know, I don't think that they're all critical thinkers, all of them. I think that they look around and see what someone else has done and say, hey, we should do that. And I, I think that that is largely, you know, we see it, seen a bit of a shift here back to kind of what the norm is. And so, you know, I, that's what I think is the most interesting as we go into 2020. The game is going to continue to grow as it is. Media rights, I think, will continue to be a, the, the main story, and that has really bolstered baseball's bottom line. But the, the divergence between the amount that the players are making and the amount of revenues that the owners are making is the chasm is widening. And that, I think, is going to be something to watch um, when this labor deal expires at the end of 2021. Uh, well said. I have Maury Brown with me at uh, Forbes. Uh, great pieces over at Forbes. You get them at Baseball America, at Bizball Maury on Twitter. Uh, 
you mentioned the tanking and the Astros, and you're right. Sports in general has been what a copycat league forever. I always remember that it started like the Florida Marlins win the World Series in 2003 with uh, Luis Castillo and Juan Pierre at the top of the order, and well, now you got to have speed, and then you know that's the only way you could win. And then the Red Sox win a couple of years later, and uh, well, you got to have Moneyball on base percentage, things like that. So it's always been a copycat sport. The thing about the Astros, and you would know this better than anybody. That financial situation, the television situation in that market made it essential for them to tank, quote unquote, and rebuild the way they rebuild. That not necessarily has to be the case for the Mets or for the Cubs or for Toronto. And I think a lot of the fans hate the owners because they're wealthy uh, and, 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 and the players always get, uh, you know, well, sometimes it's the players, but in ways, this is about saving money, in my opinion, anyway, these tanking. Because if they figure, well, if I'm not going to win, why bother? I'll, I'll sell the fans on a rebuild. I'll save money. I won't have to spend on payroll. Uh, sure, they'll reinvest in other areas, but it's not like investing in a $180 million payroll. I mean, let's face it. So I don't want to call it a scam, but sometimes it comes across that way. It's a, it's a bit of a snake oil salesman type of, of situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the thing that really has changed, though, Mike, and this is something that doesn't get talked about much. You know, if we look at like, you know, if if we look at the cold deal with the Yankees and how long that is for a pitcher, I mean, that was really extraordinary. And we were talking just a few years back that five years for a pitcher was crazy, and and you're starting to see that the ability to get top tier talent. Um, requires stretching it out over years so that they don't bump into the luxury tax threshold and they give themselves some flexibility. So what happens with that, of course, is that you get these guys tied up for a while, and that really can hang around in, you know, your ability to be flexible. And look, everybody, the, the thing about the Astros, and this is the thing, you know, once once again, if we go back to Moneyball, right, everybody talks about if you go back to the Moneyball era with, with the A's, everybody's like, well, there was all these, you know, undervalued guys and we were going to use saber metrics and they of course completely ignore the fact that they had probably the best trifecta of pitching that was in the league at the time the the fact of the matter is is it's sex it's exceptionally difficult to not only draft your talent develop your talent and have that all align with your free agent signings that can hang around for a long time within your frame within your windows so if those things don't all align it becomes very difficult to try and move pieces around to try and make it happen. And the Mariners are horrible at this. The Orioles have been horrible at this. And, and you know, you just keep trying to plug holes along the line in free agency and hoping that your other talent comes along. And I think that what some of these guys did was they went, you know what? Let's just go from ground zero. Let's just go ahead and go nuclear in a way here. It'll allow us to be more flexible in terms of the amount of money that we can use at a given time to augment and be able to have a better idea around our farm system and our development. And the bad thing about this is, is that it completely takes the onus off of your player development and your drafting. But it is difficult. It is not an easy thing to do. But I do wonder about that at times. I think that it's, of course, a bad thing when we see you know, revenues are now at $10.7 billion, the gross revenues, even the money that, you know, if you take expenses out, they can take a billion dollars out, right? The, the audited dollars that the players union and the league uses was $9.7 billion. I mean, that's a lot of dough. I mean, that, a that good is profit really something for them to all work with. 
think about that profit margin. I mean, think about how well, many businesses are thinking of that. Right. That's crazy. And I'm sure it's not the profit margin is not quite as high as we think. I mean, there's as you pointed out in different articles, there's there's other expenses with I mean, the benefits. I mean, they had a gold standard healthcare plan. I mean, I don't think fans realize even retired if I'm not mistaken, retired players, if you play a certain amount, are are still in that plan. I mean, there there's a, yes. a great health care for baseball players and their families. Well, and the luxury tax, a lot of people don't know this, right, is that there's $13 million that comes off the top. And then after that, 50% of what is left goes to the players. And then the rest goes back to the clubs that didn't go over the luxury tax threshold. But that also winds up going in as benefits to the players. So that's a substantial sum. But I think the big thing about it, Mike, is that um, you, you work two sides of this. I, I, will, I, I can't understand in this day and age why any owner would sit there and cry that they don't have the ability to spend. Now, they may not have the ability to spend in a given moment, but there should, no, there should never be a habitual round of this sort of thing. Now, I remember distinctly talking to Rob Manfred before he was commissioner. Bud was still the commissioner, and he was the head of labor, and we were talking about this situation. I was talking to, to then-executive director Michael Weiner of the Players Association and I was talking about this, that I had heard that there were clubs using their basically their, their revenue sharing money to pay down debt. And the Mets are, of course, a great example of this. Of course, they've got other things underneath, you know, that had been tied with the Wilpons. And thank goodness, maybe they're going to get out from underneath that. But the deal about it was, was that I was, I was shocked because it states very distinctly within the collective bargaining agreement that that should never happen. And when I when I told you, you know, the PA, they were like, yeah, we're going to have to have a talk with them because that's absolutely not how it's supposed to be. But I think that there largely is that you if you talk to Rob Manfred now, he will say, I don't see anything wrong. If your team is not going to be competitive, if your team is sitting in the 75 to 80 win window, throwing all the money in the world after free agents is not going to help you win. And, and he is, you know what, I, I can't argue with that on one level. On the other side of that coin, though, Mike, is are the teams that are hanging around right at the wild card or very close to it. And I never understood, and this is why I get so mad at the Pirates, is that they've had windows where they've been competitive and they don't do anything about it. I don't no. understand why the Mets, when they're very close, can do something about it. So, and it, But they it were is, criticized. Um, uh, Maury, the Mets were criticized by the local media. For not selling off at at, at this year. Now uh, they turned out they came close. Um, you know, some people call it the mm-hmm. fake pennant race, but I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, you said there's the element of parity that maybe that's not there, but I'll tell you something. Um, you can sneak into a wild card. I don't see why you can't win. I mean, is it likely? Maybe not. But, you know, the Yankees aren't guaranteed, as the last 10 years have, have shown, to beat you in a seven-game series. Uh, and you, it's an entertainment product. How do you, you, they have to understand you can't entertain people with uh, team building. You have to do something more. And you can still get good players on short-term deals to compete, no? Yeah, you can. I mean, look, the, the most difficult thing, and look, I started, I haven't written about this, but I did look at this very closely while the postseason. I do it every postseason. But it'll, it's really interesting when you start to break down the teams that move largely into the late round. Certainly, and when they get into the, L, the uh, LCS, 
those teams and you look at why they're there, it is almost always starting pitching. You know, it really is. And you, you're going to get some relievers in it, but it is pitching. And, you know, the, the old adage, right. you know, pitching wins championships. And, and I believe it's largely true. That is, is a critical piece that other teams can't afford to do. So, of course, those pieces become exceptionally valuable. And that's why the Mets, if you're looking to go ahead and restock your, your you know, pipeline or be able to be competitive, not just now, but in, you know, the next five years, you do have to have a plan for that. Now, it's interesting sure. I was talking to, you know, although he's, you know, he gets beaten around a little bit, but, you know, Ned Coletti had been around for a very long time. Now he's working in the NHL, but, you know, whether he was with the Cubs or whether he was with the Dodgers, and I had a discussion with him at one point, and I said, you know, really, you know, I think that fans don't understand that general managers are, have to think about things, you know, a little bit more long-term. And he goes, it works like this more. This is exactly how it is. He goes, today is your most important day, meaning wherever you are in the season. And then the end of the week, and then the month, and then I'm looking at, you know, for the end of the year, but then I've got to have my next year plan, my five-year plan. And sure. so your ability to roll those things and have be thinking about where you are, once again, we're talking about free agents that are tied up. And the ones that, of course, are in longer deals that have where they're going to start to see, you know, performance declines, you want to unload those guys. And the difficulty every time, though, is that, you know, especially with the Mets, like the idea of unloading a guy right now that is Cy Young or, you know, you look at the at the roster and you go, you know, whether it's Syndergaard, it doesn't matter. You look at it in the here and now and you go, man, that's a bad idea. We're right there. Go out and get some other pieces and do that. And that can work. At the same time, if you're sitting there going, well, you know, how these pieces are moving around and where we are, maybe we need to think about it and think about the future. And that's always a call for, for of course, ownership and what their budgets are going to be. And I, I, once again, I said it, you know, kind of quickly, but I really believe and I'm hopeful that maybe this um, environment and this mentality that has been around the Wilpons is going to, you know, go away. I don't think that it's, I think that I don't believe for a second that it turns into, you know, you know, a 180, but I do think that they, are, they should be better off than they are now. And look, speaking of that, I mean, there's still a lot of ambiguity as to the transition and and what's going to happen. And I, I think we've been we've been knowing for a long time. Anybody who's been around baseball, it's maybe been a matter of of, of when, not if, they're going to lose the team. But mm-hmm. um, they're not austerity budget. I mean, they're spending money. They're they're not too far from the luxury tax. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like they're you know down at the bottom. Net now, can they spend more? Sure. Is the luxury tax something that a lot of the fans uh, necessarily think uh, shouldn't be a hard cap? Sure. But let's remember Fred Wilpon is an old school Hawk owner that helped Bud Selig get into power. Uh, The luxury tax is that last bastion of politics, let's say, that maybe he doesn't want to cross. Uh, Look, they were one of the few teams before they had slotting as, you know, black or white. They would never go above slot because the commissioner didn't want it. He always played ball. I mean, Bud Selig saved them. There's got to be an element of that good old boys politics. And I think it hurts Fred. And I think it's Fred, not Jeff. And this is all speculation. But I know enough about them to know that, you know, my speculation might not be too far off. Well, I mean, let's just put it this way. It's not too long ago that, that Fred, was on, Fred was on the finance committee. 
which I found just to be hilarious on one regard. I actually was like, come on, guys, really? And they're like, look, he's not really doing that much. You know, they, people put too much emphasis on that. But it was, an, you know, I thought it was somewhat ironic. But, um, I, you know, I think that there is some level of truth. You know, I'm coming back to the situation between uh, the players and the owners and where we stand right now, which is, of course, you know, pre- pretense. Um, there, there is certainly this idea when you talk, to Rob, or if I talk to Dan Halem or, or any of the people on the labor side, they will say repeatedly that baseball is a free market system. Well, I don't, I don't know how to say this. It's free market in title only. Um, you know, it's not just the luxury tax. They have gotten considerable gains on the players around the surcharges that are now a part of the luxury tax. So it's not just that you go over, it's how far you go over and how hard you can get dinged. The hard slots around the draft. I mean, there are a bunch of things now that create a pseudo cap system that really, I think, do come into play because there are some penalties that come along with it. Now, look, can there teams that can do it? I think the Red Sox have always been a, a stellar example of how you can do this thing. You don't want to be the Yankees, right? Which were basically they have busted the cap every single year minus one which reset the tax value, and now look at what they're doing, right? Um, but Or the Dodgers that have gone extremely over it in the time since Guggenheim Partners have owned him. The Red Sox will, like, they'll go over, and then they come down just below it, or they'll barely get over it, and they've hung around there. And, look, I, you can't really fault how they've done in performance um, since 2004. I mean, they, they, they've just looked pretty damn good. So I think that the, the difficulty that fans have is this idea that, that, uh, that there's all this money and why can't you spend? And the answer to that is there should absolutely be no excuse in particular windows why teams can't play. It has to make baseball sense. And I'm not saying this in a Cubs with Chris Bryant, let's hold him down and mess with a service clock type of baseball sense. I'm talking about legitimately having a reason to spend at a particular point. Uh, I, it wouldn't make sense. I, you know, I sat there for years watching the Mariners and I was talking with Jeff Baker, who's now off the beat, but was, you know, he's BBWA Hall of Fame voter. And he and I were talking in 2010 about how the Mariners had a, a, what I, what I called a commitment problem, which is that they couldn't figure out how to blow it up or to spend. And they were in this weird spot where they were kind of in between. Well, they finally blew it up. And I, I actually applaud them for that. That team makes sense. Other teams like the Mets and others, I don't really see it. They should be able to cycle up and down. The Cardinals have done it for years. They've been very good at it. They've remained competitive. Now that's you know, indicative of their division a little bit. But still, I, I get back to this thing. There is no excuse for a team in baseball's biggest market that has the biggest you know, naming rights deal for their stadium in the history of Major League Baseball and other aspects that they have as a complete advantage to not do better. I mean, the NL East is pretty much wide open. They should be doing better. And once again, I, I'm hopeful that that kind of switches around in the next 10 years. Uh, Maury Brown, uh, Forbes, joining us. You know, Maury, you're one of the few media types, though, that, you know, you're very balanced. You say, hey, blow it up when, it, when it's right. And you, you mentioned the Cardinals. And I still believe, I mean, we, this is not the NBA. You know, you're not vying for Zion Williamson in the draft. And, and if you think you are, I mean, in baseball, there's no guarantees. I mean, Jacob DeGrom, mm-hmm. Seth Lugo, guys on the Mets, 
you know, these were not uh, big, uh, you know, draft picks. You know, they recently, I think it was Baseball America or Baseball Perspectives put out the most valuable, uh, you know, draft classes of the decade. And the Mets were one of the top five. Well, that's a top heavy thing. And DeGrom's part of that. And, and you couldn't predict that. Uh, I think there's a, a media contingent that applauds this. Well, it's got to be done one way. You got to tank like the Astros. You got to start from zero and build it up as if it's manifest destiny that uh, good principles like a math problem, like a logic problem, lead to a World Series. You and I know that's not true, that every tank that happens, um, the Astros are a very extraordinary case, and they should be applauded. Um, maybe there were things that they did outside the lines mm-hmm. that we'll continue to learn about that obviously contributed to that. Um, the Cubs, uh, you know, they probably didn't have to go to the extremes, and they didn't really tank as like the Astros did. There's a misinterpretation yeah. to go back. The Astros were an extreme case with a bad television deal. They weren't even on TV. That's not necessary for a lot of teams. Um, and I think that you and what you're saying, which is very balanced, is missing from the mainstream media. Maybe I'm, I'm overreacting to that, but I see a lot more applause for tanking and team building. And I personally think it's, you know, you talk about, and then the next breath they'll say, well, the game doesn't have stars. The game can't market itself. Well, how do I bring an eight-year-old to a ballpark, say, this team stinks, but guess what? That kid in the Florida State League that you don't know anything about and won't hear about for six, seven years, that's going to be the reason why we're coming to the ballpark today. No, they're, they're not coming to the ballpark, right? They stay home. Uh, and I don't know if those kids yeah, are necessarily uh, on MLIB.com. No, and they're not. I mean, and yeah, there's some, there's absolutely some truth to that. I mean, look, attendance has been down. Um, I, I think that there's some contributing factors to uh, maybe the amount that it's been down. There's some cyclical stuff, but they're not helping themselves. And the marketing of the game is it. We could do a whole segment on that. Baseball is at an extreme disadvantage compared to other sports. And, and I really try and dissuade fans from, trying to compare to what the NFL or NBA does where, you know, the stars are on television on the camera for extended periods where you're in baseball, your star out, your star, Mike Trout, right. Is going to come up every inning and a half unless the ball happens to track his way. And then your pitcher, if he's your star, he's up there every fourth or fifth day. And it's just at a disadvantage due to the way that the game is. And the game isn't going to change that radically. So that's not going to fix it. But, I mean, to your point in terms of balance, I think the problem that largely happens is that fans, of course, are focused on their their team, you know, their favorite team. And I, I can't look at it that way, especially when I'm trying to figure it out from, you know, league-wide perspective and growth and all that other stuff. You wind up looking at all of it. And so all of them are unique. The thing that really bugs me, though, is this idea that um, teams that are competitive, they can certainly make themselves better they can go after a Harper or they can go after a Machado. They really can if it makes sense. Um, you know, Joe Sheehan is a bit of a, you know, he, I've known him forever. And Joe has always been pretty radical and very outspoken about his stuff. But I think he's largely right, um, although he can be a little bit harsh about it. I mean, a, that, that there really should be windows and that there should be no excuse for teams to say, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I'm glad we didn't go out and get Bryce Harper. Well, that's just stupid. If you had the ability to get Bryce Harper and you were in a position to grab him at the time, being the plum or one of the plums of that free agency year, well, you would probably do it. And I think that there are some advantages to it. Now, there's always the disadvantages of what Bryce Harper is going to be like later on. And those are the balances, right? I mean, I can go out and I could 
if I'm an owner, I could sit there and go, you know what, general manager, I want you to go after every plum in a given year. And I'm, you use as many years and you tie up as many resources as you can. And I may be really good for a season or two, and then I'm going to be absolutely terrible because I have no flexibility and I can't do anything. So it is always I, – I, I wish fans would look at how these contracts are structured, where they are set to drop off, how much clubs have dead money. That's a big problem for the Mets with all the doggone deferments that they've done. And sure. it, they, so that how that is structured really drives their ability to be flexible. And then, oh, by the way, you know, the players have a say in this. I don't, you know, look, sure, there are players that if you throw them all the money in the world, they will go wherever that money is. But a lot of them will say no. They want to have something. They, they, of course, everybody wants to get paid the most they can. But they also would like to go someplace where they're going to be competitive. And what they don't want to be is on a team where they're going to suck for a while. And so, you know, I mean, Robinson Cano, we can look at him and when he went to the Mariners. And everybody went, wow, that he was just grabbing the money. But I think that was honestly a point there where they thought that they had a plan that they could go ahead and do something. I mean, they, you know, uh, I feel bad for guys like Felix Hernandez. It was a fantastic pitcher that will be remembered for playing on some of the worst teams, you know, in the history of this era. And those things are hard to balance. It really is one of those things. So balance, I think, is, is probably the proper word. You just got to look at every team and try and dig into where they're at and then say, okay, you team X that have that flexibility that are in that win window, don't give me this, you know, thing that you can't spend. You clearly have the ability and the flexibility to do it. Every club has those windows. Every club should be able to do that unless they're inept. And if they're inept at drafting and if they're inept at player development, then say that's your problem, but you can't have it both ways. And which is once again, what the pirates have done for years and bugs me. Oh, we don't have the money. Fine. Then go draft and do your thing. You're getting great draft picks. Go develop. Well, you know, I, okay, man, you can't have it both ways. You either right. suck at this or you suck at that. Don't try and lay it there. So <laughs> that that's kind of the way that it has to go there. You don't have a crystal ball, but let's play a little bit looking forward now. So here we are in early January 2020. Uh, you have labor strife potentially coming up in a couple of years. You know, league, maybe the DH comes to the National League. You know, rules change proposals, uh, all sorts of things. Minor League Baseball may be blown up. Um, you know, expansion is always something talked about. What, if you had to go forward, if you had to pick like now going the themes going forward with your Forbes, Maury Brown crystal ball, what, what are the things that you think will be the hot topics over the decade? What are what are you expecting to be talking about and looking back at 10 years from now? And we'll make the date now, 10 years from now, I'll call you in January and we'll talk about it. But okay. anyway, God willing, God willingly, um, you know, so it's curious, what do you see going forward? Well, the first one I think is really going to be the change in how roster construction is going to be with this new pitch, this new inning count or um, batters count change with, with your relievers and how that's going to be. Um, I thought that the Harris deal signing was really interesting for the nationals because they were really, in need of a lefty and they went and they, but if you look at his splits, he's actually very good and actually had a better percentage on his left handers as a right hander than he did with right with righties. And I think that that is going to be something that we're going to start to really look at. And it's really, I think going to really, you know, people talk about how that's going to change strategy. It's going to alter strategy. It's just going to make it different on how roster construction is. And so I think that that is going to be in the early parts of it. 
Um, I think the other one, of course, will be to see what happens with the A's and the Rays. That's really going to kind of dictate um, what happens in potentially Montreal. Um, you know, the, the Rays are in a hell of a situation. Um, the whole split season thing I thought was a joke. That was clearly leveraging stuff. And I think that Montreal um, has a very good shot of winding up with the club. I think the A's will wind up with it. And then after that, it's a few years. I think that you're not talking about expansion until the 2030s, probably. And those two teams have to get sorted out. On the labor side, and, and I, I throw minor league baseball in that with the PBA, which is up in September, um, I, I really think that um, that is going to be something to watch. They may not contract all those teams in the first swing. It may take them a couple of agreements to get there. Um, but I really do think that the you know there is a lot of questions when I talk to Dan Halem. It's like, we draft 2,000 kids every year. Oh, we got, I got to find a spot for them. It isn't efficient. And then, of course, there's the other side of this thing, which is what is, you know, you're trying to grow the game. Uh, minor league baseball is a farm system. It also keeps baseball alive and well and allows kids to go to it, you know, affordably. Um, what does that look like? And whether we're going to see independent leagues potentially jump in the mix here. And I think that that is going to be the large story, the largest tentacle off of Major League Baseball over the next decade that we're going to watch and see how that transpires in terms of the labor agreement, you know, I, it, it's going to be really interesting. You know, we had those two down years that I talked about where it was really slow. And I just thought that that was just horrible for the league in itself. It's just difficult. You can't sell tickets. Players are signing right at the at spring training. I mean, it doesn't give your sales team chance to market those players and attendance lag from it. Um, it just made it really slow. And I think they're going to continue to try to get creative with the players association, of course, around this ability to try and make the winter meetings exciting again. Um, I don't think that it's going to happen in the way that the league would like to see it, which is like, we're going to go ahead and put like, like we have in the NBA or whether we have, we have true, you know, hard deadlines and we do this up front. Um, that would take leverage away from the players. Um, so I don't see that happening. Um, the, the actual labor deal, I think is going to be very significant in the sense that the players once again have, really lost a lot of ground and clawing back is just exceptionally difficult. It's been fraught with it. I don't, I don't believe that we will see a strike or lockout on, uh, on December 1st, 2021. I do think it's quite possible that they continue forward and without declaring one or the other on those things, uh, maybe into, you know, as early as spring training, it's just really going to depend on how the next year is. And then I think we're going to continue to, to look at what is, what is his situation around um, how, how roster construction works and whether we're going to see parity. I think the Yankees are going to become um, a, a presence again. I think the Mets are finally going to come out of this super. I think that they, you know, baseball deserves it. Fans across the country deserve it. But um, beyond that, the other thing will be the media media landscape is going to completely change. Um, I don't think that it'd be out of the question for fans to be able to watch uh, games on YouTube or potentially on Netflix or Amazon. Um, I don't think television is going away by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that that becomes a major component in it. And so I, I, I look at it that way. I mean, I think that the game, um, irrespective of the changes, pace of play, all those things. We're going to get, I think we'll get an automatic strike zone. I think that we're going to go ahead and we're going to get a pitch clock at some point. And I, you know what, I got to tell you, Mike, and this is just me. And I know that there are going to be some fans screaming and yelling at me right now, but I bet you that we'll all survive. 
I think I, if anybody has gone to a minor league game or gone to a collegiate game where there's a pitch clock, after about an inning and a half, it becomes almost transparent. And so, but that keeps television going. If they can get television to where we're not spending so much damn time watching commercials and we're spending more time watching actual action, then that will happen. Um, the situation with the ball, I think, is going to get sorted out a little bit to where it will be more consistent. Um, you know, I don't know if the home runs were exactly a great thing for the game. So those are kind of all those things. I mean, there, there'll be something. Something that we never thought of is going to pop up, and it'll be a major thing, and then I'll feel stupid because I didn't think about it now. <laughs> I hope they don't go like the NFL route where I feel like there's the regular season NFL and the regular season NBA and then there's the playoff NBA. Now, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you saw the ball change in the playoffs, and the playoffs normalized a little bit this past October. Um, I don't want it to be uh, – I'll use it – I'll date myself, uh, Sega Genesis in the regular season because I want to you know, see home runs and see action. And then all of a sudden, all right, well, it's the postseason now. It's time to you know, you know, buckle down. There's naturally going to be differences in the postseason, bigger focus, you know all hands on deck that, that changes the game inherently, but I always felt baseball was better than that. Than though, and I'm a big NBA fan. So, I mean, you know, I'm not trashing the other leagues. I, I just felt it was different because it was the same game. Um, and I, well, I hope in that what you say with the ball that, you know, that that wasn't part of the plan this year to have a regular season ball. Now let me, so let me, ball. let me talk about that. Let, let me talk about that for a second. And let's just use some general logic here. Right now. Look, I saw, um, Meredith Willis's stuff. I saw Rob Arthur at BP stuff there. It's fantastic research. And if anybody doesn't know who those two people are, they really should look them up because they did a lot of studies using StatCast and other stuff to look at the changes to the ball. But this is not, if you thought about this logically, right? Okay. Base, I, I, so here we go. Hey, you know what, guys, we need to up the you know the offense in the game chicks dig the long ball so let's juice the ball so that we get a bunch of home runs okay cool all right now we're going into the most important point in our entire season which is the postseason we want everybody to pay attention let's deaden the ball right when everybody's looking like like to do it really like as a hard cut let's not be smart and like oh hey man we, we're going to do a conspiracy here let's slowly integrate the the less lively ball in the last few weeks of the season's heading into the postseason, let's just do a hard cut while everybody's looking at us and make it a big controversy. It just doesn't make sense, Mike. And just in that alone, it doesn't make sense. Do I think that they have a really bad quality control problem at Rawlings? I absolutely do. Do I think that Rob Manfred and the league didn't help themselves? They, they haven't helped themselves at all. So, Look, I, I just think that, um, you know, we're going to look at this and go, geez, you know, I just can't get behind the conspiracy theory behind it. I think that oftentimes this stuff is just, you know, we, we have this thing where we, we think that um, our, our sports leagues are like they're omnipresent and unaware of things all the time. And they should be, but they aren't. They really aren't. I think that they they don't really pay close attention to everything that they should. And I think that that was one of those cases. Now, there are going to be a bunch of people that, that, you know, saying that I'm like, you know, carrying the water for baseball. But I really I'm not. I'm trying to be balanced here. I think that they totally screwed up. I just don't think that it was willful for them to do that. And once again, it'll be interesting to see that report that came out that largely, of course, backed up with what, what Meredith Willis said and what Rob Arthur had basically been telling everybody in their reports for BP and Hearst with The Athletic. 
was I, I think there was that report that said, here's our recommendations. And they said they were going to do all those things. Now, let's see if they do that. Because Manfred said to me, and I broke this news directly, we need a more consistent ball. We absolutely need a more consistent ball more. And I was like, all right, okay, then let's, let's make it so. I think if Rob is going to go ahead and go on record as saying that, they're, they're going to try and do something about it. Uh, real quick, last thing. Is this Astros thing going to get ugly uh, pretty soon? Yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to have to happen. Um, I don't know if you saw Carlos Correa's comments over the weekend, but, you know, he was like, I thought we were teammates, you know, talking about fires and, 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 you know, and, you know, he's, he's able to say what he wants to. And all I could think of was the Godfather, you know, we're family and you know what we do with snitches and, and, but it was, I, I, they have to do something about this. Um, there is a, there's a very big difference, um, in the traditional sense of cheating, which is science stealing, which is part of the game and using electronics. And we're seeing this, of course, it's not just in baseball. I mean, you look at the situation with the Patriots and the Bengals is another example. Um, when you start to get technology in play, they're, they're, they're really going to have to come down hard. And I, uh, there's going to be, uh, there's certainly going to be fines. And I think that you could see a couple of people get fired. Um, I, I certainly hope it's not Kevin Goldstein. I, you know, it would be very depressing for, you know, a former baseball prospectus alum um, to see, you know, another guy that has then, you know, seems like a rising star to have that happen to him. But if he was involved in it and talking about how they should use technology to cheat, well, then he's going to get burned. Um, but I, something's going to happen. It ha- and it's going to have to happen pretty quick, Mike. Clearly, they, the, the Astros need to know what the landscape is going to be um, as they head into the season, if they don't have some sense of it already, um, but certainly before spring training. So, you know, like you said, catchers and pitchers start reporting here pretty quick. I would imagine that it happens late February, maybe, you know, yeah. no, no sooner or no later than, of course, when, when spring training gets underway. You, you think Beltron gets pinched and you have a Mets angle with the new manager and his involvement? Or you think that's far fetched? No, it's hard to, you know, I don't yeah, it, it you know it really is. I I don't know. I think that they will try. You know, and and once again, I have no sense about this. I'm this is totally me. You know, um, you know, speculating. Um, I imagine that it will largely be contained to the club itself. I think it would be just make it really complicated if they have it affecting um, former bench coaches and others that have worked in the coaching staff that have gone on to other clubs. I just think that it would just make it really difficult. There would have to be some – maybe I should put it this way. There would have to be something exceptionally damning to have something happen with Beltran. I, I just I, – I really can't see it, um, given, of course, where the club is at. You know, once again, just because baseball has rules doesn't mean that they don't bend them a little bit. I think that they honestly look at this and they go, you know, the Mets, the, the Mets need to get their act together. We need to have some positive stories out of the Mets here. and We've got a couple of things going on. Um, are we going to go ahead and kill that right away um, over maybe, you know, a, a slight transgression? There might be some wrist slap, but I, I don't think we're going to see anything significant, Mike. I just think it would just create too many complications. Absolutely. So, Maury, uh, what do you have coming up? Uh, obviously at Forbes, Baseball America, at Bizball Maury on uh, Twitter. Uh, what else you got going on that uh, the listeners can know about over the next uh, couple of weeks? Well, back to Baseball America real quick. I did a forward look at – it's funny. You mentioned what's, what do you think is going to happen over the next decade. 
And so I wrote about some trends that are going to go on, I think, over the next 10 years around that and some people. And so that is going to be in the print edition. And I'm sure that it's going to come out online here pretty quick. It was a pretty substantive piece. So I did that. Um, going into the year, I'll, I always um, try and interview Commissioner Manfred. Um, you know, there's a lot of things about Rob that, you know, are, are both good and bad. And, you know, there's a lot of bad going around. I have to tell the people at the league that, you know, hey, your boss is getting beat up pretty bad right now. <laughs> but I think that the one thing that I will say about him is, is that the one thing I'll say about Rob is this, is that he is he is at least open to being uh, being talked to in the media and you can talk to him very frankly. And so I try and take advantage of that every year. So that'll be coming up here within the next couple of months. And then uh, other than that, it's kind of a fluff thing. I'm going to probably do a piece on uh, Twitter accounts that I think are going to be really important in the sports business space um, over the next year. Instead of looking backwards, I'm going to look at people that I think are going to break some news. Um, there's some, I think some really great stuff going on. There's stuff today that, was out there from J.J. Cooper of Baseball America that's just incredible stuff. So there's some Twitter accounts out there that I'll probably highlight, but that's that's currently what I got. And then there'll be, of course, all the news leading up to the season. Well, listen, I always learn talking to you. You've been a good uh, guest, I think, o- over 10 years. I remember uh, the old uh, business of baseball, biz of baseball. Yeah. Always enjoy it. Uh, let's let's, let's, let, let's catch up again. Happy new year. Be well. And uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about before our date 10 years from now. So <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, Maury. All right, Mike. Thanks so right. much for having me. You got it. Maury Brown, uh, B- uh, Forbes, formerly business of baseball, uh, baseball America, uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, I got to tell you, gave a lot of meat and potatoes in there for us to think about. Uh, I just threw it out there and uh, he went with it. And he was, those are the easiest interviews when you just give them information and they know their topic and they go on and on. And I love it because uh, I, I sometimes have uh, guests say, well, did I go on too much? No, that's the point. We want to learn. We want good content. We don't want to just go back and forth yelling at each other. All right, let's take a quick break and come back with more from the Talking Mets podcast right after this. The Talking Mets podcast loves catching up with Mets alumni. Hear former pitcher Doug Sisk talk about the 1986 team when he joined me for the 30th anniversary weekend on May 29th, 2016. No, you know what? We were no different than anybody else right now. It's just that right now, I think with all the cell phones, all the multimedia and all that, I mean, you can't get away with anything. Back then, it's not that we tried to get away with anything or anything like that. It was just we were free-spirited. We did what it took to win the game on and off the field. If we needed to be prepared in whatever way it was, everybody was different. We had guys who would drink some beer in the front of the plane. We had guys that would drink this or have fun. And the other guys were playing Trivial Pursuit in the middle of the plane. Everybody was different. And they all respected what we did. But there was never one time where none of us ever focused on the game of baseball. And Davey will tell you that 100%. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Great stuff from Maury Brown. Oh, wow, I learned so much. And I think if you, I wish you could have more of these segments. I got to get Maury back on. But he really, not only is he plugged in, I mean, he's one of the guys that breaks the baseball revenues reports every year. But he's very balanced, like I said, in his view on the game and spending. 
and I think he was very fair with the Mets. And and there's a guy, he's out in Portland, Oregon. He's out in the great Pacific Northwest. He has no agenda here against the Mets. It goes to show you, when you really put the garbage aside, things are not as bad as you think, and and really the mindset. I think many of you who follow this podcast, one of the reasons why you follow is because we try to take a much more balanced view here. There are people out there that that do that and understand that, and you have to appreciate that. And and I really uh, enjoyed Maury and the time he spent with us. So uh, check him out, at Maury on Twitter. Check out his articles over at Forbes. Really fun stuff. All right, we've had a, a long podcast. We're probably going on 90 minutes, so I'll make this quick. So I tweeted out uh, earlier in the week that we were going to have a special gift uh, to everybody on New Year's Day. I was going to put a podcast out, a special gift with a former Met Hall of Famer. And it didn't happen. Part of what it didn't happen, it's slight technical difficulty in cleaning up the audio. So I'm going to announce it now. So here's what we're going to do. And I even said this. It was actually a misstep that turned into a good opportunity and turned into a better idea than what I initially had thought about. So what I want to do throughout the month of January is every Thursday, because it's slowing down a little bit, but every Thursday I want to give you a throwback Thursday interview, something out of the archives, not necessarily talking Mets, but something over the past 13 years that I've been doing radio that's obviously Mets related, a segment, a spot, an interview so that we can look back and enjoy uh, some of the fun times that I, at least I feel that I've had throughout the history of me doing maybe not talking Mets, but doing some version of radio. And I wanted to get you, the listener, and there are probably many that may not even realize. I mean, if you're especially if you're young, early 20s, you may not have been listening to me back in 2007. Some of you may have been, so you may remember the interview. But even that, with that said, um, it'd be a fun look back. So there's going to be, I believe there'll be four Thursdays, throwback Thursdays, so you'll get two podcasts. The second one's going to be, I promise, much shorter. It's going to be the interview. It's going to be a short intro and maybe me giving a couple of memories about that interview. So what are we going to start off with? Well, the first one we're going to start off with is this Thursday. And it's going to be one of my favorites. It was the first ever player interview I conducted on, I think it was my second or third show back in April of 2007. It's with the late, great Hall of Fame catcher, former Montreal Expos catcher, Mets catcher, Gary Carter, and uh, it's I got tons of funny stories about that interview. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I was so nervous. I had to clean it up a little bit. I think it sounds great. I will warn you guys on some of these interviews because you're you know different technologies throughout the last fifteen years of podcasting, different radio stations, different things. So they're going to sound somewhat different. But what I can commit to you, and I can promise you, is that the content's good. They're very listenable. They're very clean. And uh, you got to remember, I'm using a, a stereo mic now, technology that wasn't necessarily available to me back in 2007. Also, when you're doing phone interviews, it, you're using voice over IP technology. So there's going to be a slight difference. And you guys have made comments and asked me about that in quality. Always looking to improve that, but I think the most, the most uh, consistent and easiest way to conduct interviews is the way I'm doing it. It's the best quality um, and, and, and the best chance that when I do do an interview, when I walk away from it, it sounds good and it's there. Cause sometimes you can do an interview and it doesn't record and nothing's worse than spending your time on getting a guest and then not getting the interview. This is, this is a process that I really believe in. So 
Gary Carter, this Thursday, Throwback Thursday number one. We're going to, just for the month of January, that debtor period. Now, maybe the Mets make news and we have to mix it up. But right now, we're assuming it's going to be a little slower news cycle now that we're past the winter meetings, we're past the managerial search, past the holidays, and you're in that four or five week span before spring training where football is going to dominate because it's the NFL playoffs. But uh, I think it'd be fun to look back and maybe we'll do more of that. We'll see what the reaction is. I'd love for you at my email, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Tell me your uh, thoughts. I have a couple of mailbags for the next show that I want to get to. So if you sent me a mailbag over the last couple of weeks, I haven't forgotten about you. So we'll get to that. And now we'll have some fun. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing the first ever Mike Silva interview. It was with Gary Carter, the late Gary Carter. Obviously, you bring back some great memories to you hearing Gary's voice again. I think it's a great interview. And I have uh, some fun stories leading up to it. So it's going to be something that we're going to do. Kind of a throwback Thursday. We'll see how often we could do it. And it's me kind of looking back at work I've done, sharing it with the Talking Mets podcast audience who may not have heard it. So you might be hearing it for the first time. So that makes me excited to know that some of you might be hearing something. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and and be able to share. I mean, I got this treasure trove, in my opinion, of experiences that, um, you know, not everybody followed me from day one. Not everybody was, you know, following me during the NYBD days or the ESPN Champions Radio days. Or, you know, when I did some other podcast in between when I was trying to find my voice, you know, so, uh, but Talking Mets is where I'm at. I'm very happy to be there. I hope you guys enjoyed the new logo. I know Apple Podcast hasn't updated the logo yet, but it it certainly will be soon. I know they take a little bit longer, but I I really enjoy the logo. And I'm looking to take this show to the next level in 2020. And again, Happy New Year. And I appreciate uh, everybody tuning in and being a part of this podcast and this little mini family we've created over the past uh, few years, especially since this show went uh, totally independent in July of 2019. All right, I'm out of time, guys. Uh, continue to check out the show all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. Send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Of course, you get the show on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with the Throwback Thursday edition of the Talking Mets podcast this Thursday, the first one ever. Be there. Be square. Take care, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. 
by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.